0: So, this week I want to continue based on the last three weeks where we looked at the theme of what I called getting down to more direct experience and the way that our practice in many ways helps us to be more in connection with the direct experience of our bodies, our minds, our emotions, and to be skillful with the ways that we maybe go away from direct experience in all sorts of ways. I particularly focused on the ways that we move away from direct experience in thinking and assumptions and interpretations and stories as one of the ways that we can unpack the theme of confusion or ignorance. That is, to see the ways that we may be in this kind of virtual reality of thoughts and stories that become disconnected from experience. And we may live there, and hang out there, and act on that basis, as one way to explicate the meaning of confusion or ignorance. This is not at all to say that ideas, concepts, stories, interpretations are per se a problem. It's when they get disconnected from experience that they become problematic and sort of have a life of their own. You know, which we can see in the worst case scenarios as people caught in paranoid stories or ideologies that can create great suffering. Or when people in the conflict get caught in positions and stories in which they cannot hear the other person or the other side. Which is quite common as we know. And it's quite it's the newspapers are fill are really filled with accounts of people who are far removed from direct experience having conflicts. Without that, the newspaper industry would not do so well. And so, um, the suggestion was that when we attend to both the ways that we go away from direct experience, or more direct experience, and practice to stay more connected with the direct experience, again, of our thoughts, our bodies, our emotions, that we can actually, in a profound way, transform the roots of suffering and come to greater compassion and wisdom. That we can, in a sense, transform ignorance. That was the theme of the last three weeks. The theme I want to explore today is given that thoughts, interpretations, narratives, large-scale understandings are part of human experience. How, when we get removed from direct experience, uh, when we're not immersed in direct experience, and use thought, concepts, narratives, and so forth, how can we do so skillfully? (laughs) That's the theme for today. How can we be skillful in a a word, with our thinking. What is skillful thinking? What is wise thinking? That's what I want to explore today, based on where we've been the last three weeks. So I want to do a very brief review of where we've been, and then go right into that theme. And I'm thinking, when I looked at the area that I wanted to cover in terms of what is skillful thinking, it's a big area. And if I was going to be skillful with my thinking about skillful thinking, I would need to not just try to do it in one session. So I'm going to try to do it in two sessions, which probably will not be enough either. And when I get to that, I'll say what I I have a sense of a a few themes I want to explore today and then some uh, next week. I used in the last few weeks a, a model, which is kind of a visual model which I have found very, very helpful, uh, which is taken actually from the organizational development literature, which is, cu- which is a model or an image called the ladder of inference. And I didn't bring in handouts today. i would given handouts the last few times. But I'll just uh, give you a picture. Imagine a ladder that goes up, it's, as it were, propped up against a wall. And this is an image of how we in a sense, move away from direct experience as we climb the ladder. At the bottom of the ladder we could say, the model actually is more a model that's relevant for organizational life, but I've made the connection with the mindfulness practice. The the model itself says at the bottom of the ladder there is what we (laughs) might call data and there's kind of an unlimited sense of data. We could you know in any given moment attend to hundreds or thousands of things. Even right now we could attend, we could, you could listen to me, you could look out the window, you could stare at your chair, you could look at the nice scarf of your neighbor and think about it. You know, you could do all sorts of things. You could um, think about uh, what comes next and so forth. And so there's there's quite a large pool of potential data in any given moment, in any given situation. In, sen- in a sense, almost infinite. We could, go in many, many directions, especially if we go into thinking. And then, on the basis of that pool, we select out certain data for attention. We give attention in certain directions. Then on the basis of, that, of what we select out, we may find mean something meaningful. You know, we may, we may, in a conversation, hear the entire conversation from a friend, let's say, but we may want to focus on a few words and say, what did she mean by that? We may, you know, and we may actually feel whatever. We, we may think, I, I am insulted by that. And we may select that out, make meaning out of it, make an interpretation. This is the fourth time she's said something insulting to me. And then we might go up further the ladder. We may make interpretations. We may make assumptions. We may come to beliefs. We clearly she has more psychological work to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: or maybe more meditation. Now I'm going to suggest, you know, and, and then we have certain beliefs and it may be connected with action, you know. I'm going to suggest that she both meditate and do psychotherapy. And I'm going to suggest a particular therapist who I know is very good for her character structure. <laughs> so, this is called going up the ladder. <laughs> you get the image? No. No. We necessarily go up the ladder all the time. Again, nothing wrong with it. What what was pointed to particularly was that the analysis in our, when we look to our mindfulness practice, is that we often stay way up the ladder a large amount of the time. And there's also pointing to how we often go up the ladder because we're triggered. The example um, shows that. You know, that I could be I could be charged, I could feel, what? I could feel shocked, scared, aversive towards what was what, what said. And I would actually, as it were, go up the ladder and stay at the place of interpretations. And I mentioned how in a lot of skillful meditation, or it could be psychotherapy, we learn how to come down the ladder. We learn to track our thoughts, to notice our patterns for going up the ladder, we learn how to be with the body, with emotions. We learn how to track thoughts. And, ha- and this is a key way not to remain so caught in the thinking process. And particularly we notice when we get, when we get triggered. When we are... Uh, have often some kind of unpleasant experience. Or we can also have some pleasant experience. I can... Uh, I think last time I gave the example of someone who might be um, sitting here and notice a very nice garment worn by someone else and really like it. And instead of listening to my talk about how we go up the ladder, the person would go up the ladder (laughs) and would would start thinking, I really want that. I really like that. I will, you know, and um, I will ask that person where he or she got that garment and I will rearrange my afternoon to go shopping. <laughs> you know? And that would be an example. And again, in itself there's nothing wrong with, with that uh, going up the ladder, but here we want to see where that's driven we would say either by kind of grasping an attachment or a pushing away. We, that's in a sense what we call being triggered or being reactive. The long-term proposition is that when we're not aware of that our being triggered will uh, keep us up the ladder and will generally be ignorant as to why we're there. We won't really know why we're there. I mentioned how this is a typical pattern in conflict. You know, it's very, very common in conflicts for people to go way up the ladder and more or less get stuck in positions, ideologies, judgmental mind, and so forth, all of which are pretty much up the ladder. The role of a mediator or someone who's skilled in conflict is to bring the parties back down and say, can you just describe your experience? What happened? What were you thinking or feeling? And can you do so as much as possible without making interpretations of the other person? That's what a skillful mediator would actually do. One wants to bring the person down to experience because that's where the pain is, basically. If the conflict is driven by pain, as almost all conflicts are, the healing occurs when we can actually go down the ladder and touch the pain. So that's what we do in our meditation practice. So last time I talked about that general sense of things, and I also talked about some more subtle ways that we, in a sense, go up the ladder. I talked about how we can also be, as it were, stuck up the ladder for reasons that are inaccessible to us, what we might call more unconscious material. So, for example, if I'm have been conditioned—the example I gave last time—if I've been conditioned as a young child not to be angry, then when I get near the territory of anger, it'll be suppressed basically, and I will, over time, find that my anger becomes inaccessible. I will, and I will—if uh, I get even close to the territory of anger—I will start judging myself. I will judge others, typically, who get angry and, you know, I will say, oh, they can't control themselves, or they're bad, or whatever. And I actually, the actual, uh, the situation which is driving this, which is my own suppression of my anger as a child, which is almost, in many cases, pre-verbal and not really very accessible, starts to drive my behavior where I stay, as it were, up the ladder and I can't even access what's at the bottom of the ladder. That's where Western psychology can be very helpful in pointing out how unconscious material is formed. And I mentioned how the same thing is true of societies. Societies don't want to look at certain things happening, by and large, and it becomes almost part of the collective unconscious. I gave the examples of the legacy of slavery or the legacy of the uh, genocide genocidal acts against Native Americans, or we could say even with the um, Occupy movement, it's trying to say, don't have the inequality and the poverty become part of the collective unconscious. We need to attend to this. You know, I, That's how I interpret the best of these movements, is that it's really saying we need to attend to the painful part of the social experience. And it's almost, uh, uh, the best of it is moral and compassionate in its root. It's really pointing to that and saying this is important. And we have to address this and not just go on with business as usual, so to speak. And so there is this way that material starts to become unconscious and it's harder to access, it's harder to practice. And And yet we have tools, mindfulness practice does over time open up to unconscious material and there are other ways of of working with that. And they also gave a third and yet in in many ways more subtle level of ignorance, which is just the ignorance we have in a sense about who we are, the nature of experience that's pointed to in many spiritual traditions. In the Buddhist tradition, this especially pointed out that we're confused about impermanence, we're confused about the roots of suffering, and we're confused about who we are if the first two weren't enough, (laughs) you know. And that with practice we can explore this. But that confusion, you know, the repetition of thinking that things are permanent, you know, and our language contributes to this with our words that make it seem like objects are permanent and objects are solid, you know, or the way we have names or the way we assume that I'm a separate being separate from others, the way that our language and our conditioning is so thick That is, as it were, we live with these beliefs way up the ladder. And practice is to bring us down so we look at experience more closely and we see more fully what we might call the realities of impermanence, the dynamics of how suffering occurs, so we don't go about acting in ways by grasping and pushing away compulsively, that actually bring about suffering while we think it's bringing about happiness. Right? That's, that's a root confusion. And yet we've repeated it so many times in our life that it's, as it were, we have a belief, unconscious, quite subtle, that's way up the ladder, and we don't have access to the reality of impermanence and the roots of suffering and who we actually are. And so this is yet a little more inaccessible. But all of these dimensions are accessible to practice and they're accessible to being transformed. That's the good news. Ultimately, this vision and this understanding of ignorance is extremely optimistic, even though it points out what we might call um, a challenging reality. You know, the, you know, so that's, that's the message, and that with attention and with practice, all of these forms of going up the ladder of ignorance can be transformed. Okay, ready to sign up for the long-term training <laughs> to transform all ignorance and be of benefit to all beings. Yes, okay, we have a sign-up sheet up here. Um, meanwhile, how do we work with thoughts and concepts and interpretations, right? We're, we, even if we can be very happy about that uh, understanding. And, and I know, that actually... Uh, you know, I've heard from some people that the, you know, when you look around, you can really see this process of going up the ladder, and it's not so hard to come back down. You know? How many people have looked at that some and found that it's actually quite practical to just to come down the ladder and attend to direct experience more? That's all we're asking, I think, it seems like uh, most people. Um, and it, it is accessible, it is practical, and we can also, uh, I think, work skillfully with, um, with concepts. So I wanted to point to a few themes about how to work skillfully with thoughts, concepts, stories, narratives, and then work with uh, a few other themes uh, next time. The themes I want to explore today, I think, are four. I don't know if I'll get to all four, but I'll, I'll try. The first is for to have our thinking Stay connected with direct experience as much as possible. That's the first theme I want to explore. Kind of commonsensical, based on where we've been, right? Have your thinking in connection, essentially, with your lived experience. Uh, And and have that connection with the emotions, with the body, with really knowing what one's thinking is, with one's thinking process. approach your your approach your use of thinking grounded in a sense of practice. In particular, we get from the tradition a pretty detailed understanding of the nature of what are called views or large-scale interpretations. And essentially we get a pragmatic message that one wants to be very careful at essentially dogmatic views of any kind whether they're interpretations about myself, or my friend, or views about the world, that we essentially want to use thinking pragmatically for the services of helping others and helping ourselves. That's essentially it, to use thinking pragmatically. So I'll talk about that. The third theme is to have a particular attention to reactivity as it operates in connection with our thinking. Again, it's in some ways continuing what we've done before. And the fourth is about the importance for our thinking of connecting it with the body and the emotions. To develop in the long run what we might call a wise embodied heart as the core of our being. And to work against tendencies which are quite strong in this culture to separate out thinking from the heart thinking from the body, all of these from each other. Very strong in this society, you know, where thinking becomes uh, technical. Again, I, I would interpret um, uh, some of what's happening socially as saying, don't have economics just be some technical discipline, but have it connected with compassion. You know, that's, one, that's one way that I look at what's happening. You know, at it at its best. You know that that it's that we can see that you know that so much of uh, our sciences and social sciences almost become these autonomous disciplines that are not connected with our core values, and that can be problematic. That's a larger theme, um, which I which I may touch on. So maybe first, before I go into those four themes, just to say a little bit that. For people doing Buddhist practice, uh, thinking can be a confusing area because we're, we seem often to be told that thinking is bad, get rid of it, Still your mind, don't think. <laughs> I, and, I, and I think there's even something that's sometimes quoted at Spirit Rock um, uh, from one of the Zen patriarchs. It goes something like, Stop all your thinking and there is nothing that you will not learn. <laughs> Something like that. And I think there, there can be some confusion there because I think it's quite important to be skillful with our thinking. And actually to use thinking at times in an active way. So we can be confused about that because we sometimes get the message. And it's related to what I was talking about in response to Carrie earlier, that we can get the sense that the real action is just the stilling of my mind in meditation. And we can forget about the wisdom dimension, and we can forget about the ethical dimension, which often require an active thinking or active reflection to know what we're doing. And so I think this is part of the part of just the heritage of the way Buddhist tradition has entered the West where there's been so much of an emphasis on meditation. And for many of us we also had probably challenging experiences maybe in higher education where we saw that thinking wasn't always a resource that was connected with wisdom or compassion. You know, maybe in college or like I was referring to some of the ways that it's used publicly you know, where, where there's sometimes a disconnection. So that's been a been a very common experience. And yet, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a very important place for active thinking. The key is just to have it grounded in the core values. I remember one of the Tibetan teachers I've studied with, um, uh, Sukni Rinpoche, he says, if you're not into thinking, you won't go very far with me. You know, that you have, to, you have to engage in skillful thinking. But how to do that is the question. We've just had three weeks on the dangers of going up the ladder. So how to, how to work skillfully is, is crucial. So the first theme, stay, have one's thinking stay connected with direct experience as much as possible. Again, kind of obvious, it follows. But I think it's really helpful to remember in a given situation, is what I'm thinking, am I going way up the ladder? Is it really connected? You know, am I being driven by anger that I'm not in touch with? Very common, you know. And so it's very helpful in daily life to look, especially if there is repetitive thinking. You know, that that the mindfulness and the seeing of repetitive thinking becomes very, very crucial in our practice. Because it's the repetition that can be a sign that there's some charge or some reactivity the fact that I'm repeating this again and again about something that just happened is a very good sign that I should try to connect the thinking with the direct experience and go down, in that case, go down the ladder. You know, it could also mean that if I'm, let's say, in a conflict situation and I want to talk about uh, the situation that that we have a difficulty with, it can be very, very skillful to go back to my own direct experience. And this is what some of the skillful uh, disciplines related to speech and communication do, like nonviolent communication. They direct us to say, can I start by talking about my own direct experience? You know, like, when you said this, I felt angry. As opposed to, what? (laughs) (laughs) You did that again. You're just so rude.
1: Right.
0: I'm trying, I have to. I don't usually say things like that, so I'm trying, to, I'm performing a little bit. <laughs> but um, you know, we have to. How do we? Um, I think we all know that, right? That that. And so, it, uh, st- keeping one's thinking connected with direct experience is extremely important when there's some tension. You know, and it could be it could be purely an internal process. You know, I I mentioned uh, maybe a few times ago that when I do one-on-one work with people, the single most important thing that I say is, watch the story that you're telling yourself. I also have to say that to myself sometimes. What story am I caught in? Because often I'm caught in a story and I'm removed from direct experience. And so that becomes a crucial practice to, you know, whether it's in my individual reflection or individual looking at my own experience or whether it's in my uh, relational life. What is, what is that was actually my experience? It's also, in the context of conflict, relating to one's own experience is actually very skillful because it tends to evoke compassion rather than defensiveness. When we go to the level of interpretations and narratives, when there's a conflict, for example, it will tend to evoke defensiveness. If I say, you're so rude, as opposed to, I felt angry when you did that, it's a very different, unless the person is extremely skilled with dealing with obnoxious comments coming his or her way, (laughs) which is a training, one can do, (laughs) Uh, then that person will tend to be defensive. So very, very important to stay connected with direct experience as we stay connected with more direct experience. My, my um, own history in meditation is that um, my level of thinking has decreased tremendously. I think, that compared to when I started meditation, I think I have about 10 to 20% as much thinking as I used to. And I think it's better quality. You know, that, that just, you know, the... the actual amount of thinking, when we stay more with direct experience, decreases. I think probably many of you find this. How many can relate to that? That some of the level of thinking has decreased. And how many of you found the quality increases? Yeah, about the same amount. That's, that's what I find, personally. That partly, I mean, partly it's common sense. There's, as it were, less static. <laughs> right? There's less just everything moving around, so I can have, be a little more clear. There's less going on, so I can actually uh, focus a little better. So that's the first theme, really, to emphasize. Can you stay close to direct experience in one's thinking? So, if, again, it doesn't mean that we don't go to interpretations. We need them in certain situations. We need them, you know, for trying to understand uh, what's going on you know in the organization we may need to have certain kinds of more complex thinking to understand a system to understand how we're going to you know build a chimney all these sorts of things we may need to have plans and strategies and so forth but can we connect them with direct experience that's that becomes the key and there's a lot more we could say about that point but i'll just i'll leave it at that for now we also want to have a general understanding of the place of views and concepts, theories, and so forth. And I think the the message that we get, especially from the Buddhist tradition, I can think, and compare it to different so-called religious traditions, almost uniquely, is that the role of theories and thinking is pragmatic. And it's essentially there, when we come from a place of practice, as an aid to well-being. It's an aid to transform suffering that we don't so much um, think that ideas and theories in themselves are valuable. And so concretely that means that there's less of a preoccupation with getting the truth through ideas and theories, particularly in the Buddhist context through coming to metaphysical certainties or dogmatic spiritual truth something like that that's the whole emphasis is on the pragmatic way that we use ideas to help us work with fear, work with anger, develop more love, develop more compassion. that's always the emphasis and and I think when I find people who are deeply involved with spiritual practice thats that's often is the way that even very subtle spiritual teachings are held you know I was thinking of um, when I was living in Kentucky and would often go out to the Abbey of Gethsemane Catholic Monastery and I would um, meet with monks and nuns from nearby Sisters of Loretto and I lived there for four years and I would go out about every six weeks and as part of a group called the Thomas Merton Group which was quite quite wonderful and I met with uh, several uh, monks who were interested in sort of the east-west connection and you know one of them named Father Paul Quinon, I've I mentioned a few weeks ago because I stayed in touch with him, and I was just back in Kentucky just uh, about three weeks ago, and spent time with him, and he's sort of the contemporary counterpart of Thomas Merton. Anyway, but when, we, when I was part of those groups, even though you know, they knew I was, had Buddhist practice, there weren't, as it were, doctrinal discussions, interestingly. We really focused on how do, how do you help develop courage? How do you help develop um, uh, love? how do you transform fear, and so forth. And that's, for me, this is what's pointed to as a way to hold thinking, theories, teachings, views, and so forth. And there's some famous passages in the classical text which show that, that it's, one of them is the so-called parable of the raft, that some of you know, where the Buddha says the teachings are like a raft to help you go from where we are now to the other shore which is the sense of freedom and when you get to the other shore do you still carry the raft on your back <laughs> the raft is a tool it's to be held lightly or this is how Thich Nhat han says it in his this beautiful book being peace he says do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means, they are not absolute truth." So That's a way to hold, hold views and to hold them, in a sense, lightly as skillful means for pragmatic purposes. That's really the suggestion. And we can get caught, you know, and I think that's, again, I think for me this is good guidance for spiritual views, for social-political views, and this could be where something like this teaching could be very useful to what's going on socially, politically, right? Because people get very caught to views, with views, and it generally um, creates suffering, if I have to say it directly and pointedly like that. So there's a lot more that I could I could say there. Maybe I'll just make a few further comments that the the suggestion is to be very careful about thoughts or theories or ideas that get disconnected from experience and that we can't prove or disprove. You know, and um, one of the tensions within Buddhist traditions or many spiritual traditions is how people get attached to views, they become dogmatic, and even the source of wars. You know, we know that. You know, and so here the suggestion is Use views lightly, not to be attached to them. Let them be connected with with experience. And check them out insofar as they are helpful or not helpful. Very straightforward. So again, you know that teaching where the Buddha goes to the people called the Kalamas, who live at a crossroads, where they get a lot of spiritual teachings. And they say to him, Why should we believe what you're saying? You know, we have this teacher come, that teacher come, teacher X badmouths the views of teacher Y, and here you're another teacher, what should we believe, what should we do? And the Buddha says, don't believe it just because someone says it. I don't believe it because I say it. Don't believe it because it's part of tradition. Don't believe it because it's written down in the text. Don't believe it because someone with authority said it. Rather, check it out in your own experience and see whether it's conducive to transforming suffering. Very direct teaching. Very clear sense of holding views lightly. Very crucial teaching. And noticing when we don't. When do I get attached to views? And they don't have to be religious views. They could be attached to views about what should happen at this meeting or what I should do uh, next or a view about myself. You know, I I was once in a very interesting program. Uh, uh, I, have a, I, I have a doctorate in philosophy, some of you know, and I, was, I once taught philosophy at universities in a past life. And I was part of an interesting program that actually helped bring me out to California called Revisioning Philosophy. We were trying to bring the wisdom dimension back into philosophy. Uh, ultimately, unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it was doomed from the start because we, we were connected with Esalen we had our meetings <laughs> <laughs> meetings at Esalen so were the philosophers at Harvard going to take seriously someone who a group of people who had their meetings at Esalen maybe not but we had, we had good people nonetheless and everyone there was interested in a really in bringing Uh, working with ideas and philosophy into connection with wisdom. People wanted to connect it with the body. You know, we had a lot, you know, wanted to bring in, make, uh, the whole study of philosophy, which, you know, literally means love of wisdom. You know, in the Greek it means love of wisdom, and it was uh, the... in the Western University curriculum, it's the one area that clearly has a connection with wisdom. And I took advantage of that when I was teaching. (laughs) You know, I actually, in a lot of my teaching, I actually didn't have people read books. I just had them look at their own experience through journals, which was that they liked. You know, I had them do a little reading, but not much often. You know, mostly looking at their own experience. So, anyway, that's I'm digressing a little bit. But we found, when we got together, all we had 25 people. You know, some wonderful, probably people, some of you know, Houston Smith was part of it, Jacob Needleman. Um, a lot of wonderful people. Um, And what happened, we noticed, was even with this wonderful group of people there were different views. (laughs) And people started getting uptight when someone had a very different view. You could feel the body tension, you could feel stuff happening in the room. These were supposedly wise people, the cutting edge for working with thinking in a different way. And there there was a fellow named Robert McDermott who later became president of CIS, and he said, can we take the finding of charge around a difference of views be a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war? And that had a huge impact on me. What? Can we have noticing charge around a difference in views? In that context, it was more philosophical or theoretical views, but it could be the views that we have about what we should do in the organization, or what we should do in the family, or what kind of medical care we should have, or whatever. That can we have the noticing of charge around a difference of views be the starting point for inquiry? And the implication was to go down and look at what the experience is that's driving it. The implication was to go down the ladder. And can we have that be a kind of a practice? Oh, I'm noticing a difference in views. Let me look into it. Let me take it as a starting point for inquiry and learning, rather than war. What would our world be like if that was the case? Right? You know, and we need, you know, and for me it was really, it struck such a vital chord that I, I said, yes, and I actually used that as a practice personally and in a lot of my teaching. I would uh, work with people in that way. You know, I remember, I, you know, when I was living in Kentucky, I would have ethics classes and we would discuss abortion in the middle of Kentucky, with fundamentalists, and we were able to actually have it be respectful, because we tried to have it be a starting point for inquiry. You know, and they were not so locked into their views. They had strong views, but they were not so locked into them that they were not willing to follow that path of looking. And so it turned out to be more respectful. as possible, even with pretty charged areas, that's possible. So that was really, really interesting to, to do. And I invite that as a practice. Maybe, I think I'm going to not go into these further areas, but just say one or two more words and then finish, and have to have some discussion. But the, you know, what kind of practices might we do in this context? We, you can do, you can work with that practice. And you can do this personally. You don't have to have the person, people you're with, necessarily do it as well. You can do this very personally. You can, you might notice something that you really get charged that I say. And, and you can say, okay, what's there? You know, what's there for me? What might I learn from this person? You know, you can say that. Is there something I'm missing? What might I learn from this person with whom I seem to have a different view? You know, this isn't to give up your view, but it's to inquire into it, and this helps to connect it more with experience. You you might say, what's driving my view? What's the background? A lot of times our views are connected with um, experience we're not really aware of. It might come from some history and so forth. So we can do that kind of practice. We can um, look into our views. We can try to keep that um, connection with direct experience. Maybe a starting point is just to have mindfulness and notice, where do I have a strong view? Just to track that. That's probably a starting point, isn't it? Just to say, where do I have a strong view? And just say, let me just track it. Don't have to do anything more than that. Let me just notice. Where do I feel a strong view where I feel, you can sometimes feel the body gets a little tense or the mind gets tense. Just to track that, to notice it. Again, it doesn't mean that it's, you should give up the view, but, but we need to track that. So we can look at that uh, just to track the views, even if there's not a charge. Then we start looking, where are the views that I have where there's a charge? And then we can start inquiring there. We can start really looking. Another, maybe the last practice I'll give it's kind of related to what I've said, when someone has a very different view than you, can you drop your uh, assumptions and actually listen to that person? You know, there's a, radical, there's a practice of radical listening, which is very, very powerful. It doesn't mean accepting, but it means listening. Where is that person coming from? And I was thinking of that, I once, we once did a uh, retreat at Los Alamos Laboratory. A group of us connected with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We did a retreat at the Los Alamos Laboratory for five days. Um, it was to bring attention to nuclear weapons, and uh, we they let us have our retreat in the parking lot at Los, one of the parking lots at Los Alamos. So, you know, and it was pretty hot there. So we had to we luckily one some of the people in the group had rented an RV. You know, and so we meditated in the shade of the RV you know, uh, during the day. Every day at lunch we went and had lunch in the Los Alamos cafeteria and talked to the scientists. And for me that was a practical practice of radical listening. They were generally welcome. Generally the first thing they wanted to talk about when we at lunch was um, why it's a good idea to build nuclear weapons and their own rationale, you know, which might be We're, you know, if we don't do it, some other country will do it and we're a better country. You know, or we have to do it, or we'll use it wisely. And, you know, that's what we found. But I found in the group of our people, it was very interesting to see. Some people had a very hard time listening across the divide, as it were. Mm -hmm. So it's a powerful practice. Can one listen when there's a difference and take that as a practice? I'll leave those as practices. Track one's views. Notice when there's a charge. Practice radical listening to others, particularly where there's a difference, and then take that noticing of a charge and difference as a starting point for inquiry rather than conflict, or rather than war, I might say. So that's very interesting curriculum. You may have a few opportunities in the next week to try it out. (laughs) May you have many opportunities. And uh, it can be a very exciting area to work with, you know, because it really is, you know, it's, we use concepts and theories and uh, narratives all the time. How can we be more skillful? How can we have that be connected with our meditation practice? So, uh, to me, this is, you know, I found that inquiry when I had charged views to be really actually pretty exhilarating at times. At other times it was just pain in the ass, but... <laughs> <laughs> technical Buddhist (laughs) term, But it was a pain in the ass to a side of myself that I was happy to transform. (laughs) So, with that, let's just sit for a moment, then we can talk a little together. Thanks so much for your really um, wonderful attention. I can feel that up here. And uh, any questions, comments, reflections, please? Uh, Debbie and then your name? Michael. Debbie, Michael, and then we'll end. Your name? Gabriella. Gabriella and then Sue. So that may take us through the time.
1: So you were talking about when it comes to certain things like perhaps Engineering theories—you do have to take in the facts and then draw some conclusions. Just
0: mm-hmm.
1: dis- be just dis- be discerning about facts. But when it, you know, when it comes to—I'm just curious about the area of doing that when it comes to interpersonal relations,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like choosing a friend or mm-hmm. choosing a mate yeah. or choosing who your kids are going to play with. Isn't it just human to take in from inform- take in things that you see about other people, and then to, you know, the mind puts two and two together, or mm-hmm. this and that. Of I like that person, or I don't like that person, mm-hmm. or as all of a way of sort of building a life of relationships.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question of um, how this forming of interpretations, selecting data. Uh, making choices is quite normal. Um, yes, I think I think that's the case. That the real question comes up when there's reactivity or confusion. You know, and you were mentioning like something like engineering. Well, there's data. People develop theories, and you know, in the best example of science, there's open rationality, may the best point win, may the best argument win, and so forth. You know, whether that is actually what happens in science is another question. But it's the model, you know, or one model. And so the the real issue is when there's some kind of reactivity. Am I selecting my friend, you know, so it's very good to know what my feelings are in relation to this person or that person. To To know that more fully, Otherwise, we may be being driven by reactivity or cultural bias or um, a number of areas that we that are that might not be so wise. But where there's you know where there's not so much charge, yeah, those sort of things can be fairly non-problematic. Um, you know that that we can make choices about okay, what school, uh, what university should I send my children to. Or, you know, of course, it's or what, what they want. You know, how do they make the choice as well? Or how do we make that choice together, let's say? And there may be, you know, we may, we, may, uh, we may do so for very practical, good reasons, and it may not be very charged. Or it could be charged. You know, it might be the parent says, I went to this college, I want you to go to the same place. Right? And then we start to get into the area where we might say there's some grasping. Or some reactivity, mm-hmm. and if the parent insists on that, that could be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's really t- the the real key is to see where there's reactivity, where there's grasping, where there's charge, and to look into that. And if there's not that, then we may function quite normally, as it were, up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a short answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael, please. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for um, being on Dharma Seed. I listen to your talks. I live in a very remote area mm-hmm. and listen to many talks on Dharma Seed from Spirit Rock. Um, but there's one suggestion, when um, the questioners are not using a microphone, mm-hmm. it's a very disjointed conversation to try to figure out what is being discussed. Oh yeah. So I don't know if this talk is being... To repeat the question, like I did just re- repeat, yeah. repeat yeah. the questions yeah. would be, thank you. Okay. Is that it? That's it. Okay. No charge views about that? Yeah. <laughs> Gratitude. Okay. Uh, Gabriella? Yeah. Um, oh, oh, two things. One is that I noticed as I listened to you talk, yeah. I went right up the ladder in a positive way. Yeah. So my
1: re- I had a very strong reaction, but
0: it was very positive, but yeah.
1: still strong
0: reactivity Yeah. Um, and attachment
1: instead of aversion, but it was interesting to me. Yeah. But the other thing I was wondering is, if you could just comment briefly, maybe not in the, I don't know, about, um, there's this, in the Eightfold Path, there's the right view, the right action, the right speech,
0: all these right things that yeah. seem almost dogmatic. Yeah. And I, and I know that that's probably not the intention, so I don't know if you could. Yeah. Good, yes, thank Thank you. Um, so, one, maybe one observation and one question, the observation being that listening to the talk, there was a going up the ladder and getting attached to the ideas of the talk a little bit? Mm-hmm. Okay. A little attachment's okay.
1: <laughs>
0: if you go out after this and, you know, say, you won't be my friend unless you go to dharma seat and listen to the talk, then that could be a problem. <laughs> and then the second question, is there something perhaps uh, reflecting dogmatic attachment to views as evidence in the way that the the translations, at least, talk about right view, right action, right this. Um, It's a good question, and I think uh, in significant part, uh, using the word right uh, is a bad translation. So it's a Victorian translation. Much of the translations of uh, Buddhist terms, the Buddhist texts, were made by Victorians who had their own problems about dogmatic attachment to views. <laughs> Apparently, I wasn't around then, but from what I read, I hope I didn't go up the ladder too much with that, but maybe a little bit. But, but uh, you know, from what I've heard, they, they had uh, stuffy aspects. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that was so skillful. in any case, um, the, um, and so the the translation of uh, right view, for example, uh, the word right its a translation of sama, S-A-M-M-A, which is a word that probably would be best, better translated as mature, or complete, or realized, or developed. That it actually is related to uh, the words, the, the, the Pali and Sanskrit language is connected with um, uh, um, European languages. It's an Indo-European language. It's connected with words like summary or summation and so forth. <laughs> so it really has more of that sense of summation, summary, completion, maturity. I, I, you know, matur- matur- So it would be more mature view or developed view, practiced view, something like that. And so the right does have a moralistic connotation, but that's really not... The uh, what we have in the original language, which is much more that sense of maturation, and so. But I think that being said, it is an ongoing issue within Buddhist tradition whether Buddhists get attached to their own views, and there are periodically reform movements that say, "Don't get attached to this." There's, you know, in the second century, there's a great philosopher named Nargajana who comes along and says, "To be attached to Buddhist views is." the wrong thing. You know, it's, it's problematic. So I'm going to take just one more brief question and then we'll finish. Are you, are you needing to have a meeting in here soon? No, we just want to make an announcement to everybody who knows about November 22nd. Oh, yes. By oh, yes. We'll yes. Well, let's, let's have one more question. Then we'll make the announcement. Okay, please.
1: Your, your reptilian brain is operating, and you can um, your thinking becomes harsh and rigid and black and white. Yeah. And so in these occupied movement discussions, I've noticed I can offer a view about it, and well, I'll give an example, and then get attacked, and then suddenly I find myself in that stress threat response, sort of grabbing in <laughs> my view and being black and white and harsh. Um, yeah. Um, that was just sort of a reflection of something I read in the book that I thought was very interesting. But the question I have from what you said is a friend of mine has a, a very rigid view of what's been happening in Occupy Oakland. Um, mm-hmm. a very strong ideology of victims and oppressors. Mm-hmm. And, and I find I cannot listen to her talk about it. And when you say that you should listen to people, if they're very high up the ladder, very charged, and very much in stress and threat mode, what is a good way to listen
0: to that? Yeah. <laughs> so great question. Uh, really I'll I'll repeat. First was uh, more a reflection based on some reading of reading some literature on stress and noticing that when people get very charged, they may, as it were, go up the ladder and also be primarily driven by the reptilian brain, which is about survival. Right. And then then, then uh that observation related to the question of if there's someone who seems to be uh, what? uh, High up the ladder, having a very strong view that may be dogmatic and so forth. um, How to listen to that person? Yeah, so very important question. And um, I think related to the observation, because it is quite important when we track our own views we, when we track charge around views, it's important. You know, I, we can unpack that a little more subtly. When am I charged about my views and caught almost like in, a, in a, what, we would, what psychologists would call an emotionally flooded state, you know, when I'm really actually not much capable of listening to anyone, you know, when I'm really in that state of, you know, if this is my view and this is my key to survival and so forth. Right? So that's very important to track. What degrees of openness are there when I, in relationship to my views that I'm connected, attached to it? could be quite a spectrum going from relatively attached to this is hooked into my belief system about what I need for my survival. Right? So that being said, if someone is at that higher level, um, I would say to listen in a few way, in two main ways occur to me, to listen. On a cognitive level, almost every view has some part of the truth. So one can listen to where there is some truth. You can listen cognitively. Even if the view, we might say, is totalizing, claiming truth about everything, there's usually some observation or something that has a piece of the truth. I would say this is very valuable in politics because You know, we typically say, right and wrong, no truth here, truth over here, right? But I think that's, that is not a, uh, that's not wise, I think, because we can see that there probably, there there almost always is some, something of value with every viewpoint. And, And what is that with this one? So that's one thing. And the second is to see if we can listen for what's beneath the view. That's harder. It can take some training. Can I listen beneath the view and get a sense of what might be the pain that's driving that? Can I, with my empathy and my compassion, go beneath the view? Not so easy. Can I do that? But you try it out not with the hardest situations. Try it out with mildly difficult situations where someone has a strong view. And can you listen for what's there uh, when there's, it's not quite so hard? What is, what is the experience? What is, perhaps, is the pain? What is the deeper need or the deeper interest of the person beneath that? And that's very hard to do sometimes when someone comes at you with a dogmatic view. Not very easy to say, let me empathically listen to what is beneath your obnoxious <laughs> dogmatic view. <laughs> Not so easy. Uh, you would, it's not so good to frame I was framing it like that for the, <laughs> the purposes of humor, but um, not, so, not so helpful to frame it like that. But those two things, listen for the cognitive piece that's truthful and listen to the more emotional and deeper existential piece of what, where the person in a deep way is coming from, that if you had the most expert conflict mediator and that person took that person into a safe space, the person could say, this is what's really of concern to me. Yeah, so powerful. So we're going to have, because of time, I think we're going to have to end. But maybe, could you maybe bring it next time? And we have one last uh, announcement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.